Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was June 5th, 2002 in Salt Lake City, Utah, around 2 in the morning. Mary Catherine Smart had been asleep next to her sister, but she awoke to a nightmare. A bearded man had come into their bedroom and taken her sister away. All nine-year-old Mary could recall is that he said the words hostage, kill, and your family. Mary was in shock and frozen with fear wondering if the strange man would take her too if she moved. But around 4 a.m., she finally was able to find the courage to run to her parents' room. Lois and Ed Smart laid fast asleep in their bed. Lois was awakened by the soft sound of her daughter. Mary cautiously whispered to her mother that Elizabeth was gone and that a man with a gun had come in and taken her. Lois and Ed both woke up frantically and ran through the house, trying to find their daughter. They ran into the kitchen and felt a chilling breeze. Lois looked at the window to find the screen had been sliced open, and her daughter was nowhere to be found. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Rosie. And I'm Ryan. And before we start, uh, we're going to be talking about a missing person here. And we actually have a missing person locally. Her name is Jamie Kloss, and she actually went to school with my niece. So it's really close to home case. It's about an hour away from where we live. But she's been missing since mid-October when her parents were found murdered. But uh, if anything, I think the case we're discussing tonight can at least give us hope that she's still out there somewhere. This is probably the most popular case that we've ever covered. It's been on our radar for a long time, but a couple of weeks ago, Lifetime Movie Network released a film telling Elizabeth Smart's story, and she herself was producer as well as a narrator. Yeah, usually I think Lifetime's pretty corny, but I I love (laughs) that they actually worked with Elizabeth to portray an accurate story. So um, before we get started, is there anything we got to do? Well, we should probably say thank you to our five new patrons. Oh, yeah. That we've gotten this week. We've gotten five new patrons this week. Wow. Thank you guys so much. We felt pretty good every time we found one in our email. (laughs) One of them actually was just a few minutes ago, but Mm -hmm. um, they haven't responded yet about getting a shout out. But Alexandra has, so thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, Alexandra. And um, we've... If you have become a patron and you haven't gotten a shout out on our show yet, uh, we have messaged you on Patreon, probably. So if 
you do want to shout out, you can reply in there or on Instagram or whatever. Speaking of Instagram, I also started, um, I made a post on Instagram and on our Facebook page asking what length you find ideal for a podcast episode. Cause we're trying to, we usually land between a half hour to an hour, but we're just curious what people's ideal podcast length is. So Go to our Instagram page and comment on that picture to let us know. Mm-hmm. All right. So to start this one, we're going to go way back to November of 2001. This was seven months before Elizabeth was taken. Lois was out in downtown Salt Lake City shopping with her two daughters, Elizabeth and Mary. They were enjoying a nice family day. While they were there, Lois saw a disheveled man standing on the street corner, begging for money or work. Lois felt pity for the man and gave him some money, and her husband Ed's phone number to contact about getting some work. Ed hired the man to do some work at their house. He came to their home for a day to work, raking leaves for the family. So, this moment will come into play later in this case. Um... But now we're going to cut back to uh, where we left off at the beginning of the, or the end of the intro story when they had been in the kitchen and they saw that the window was cut open and their daughter was missing. Right. So when Lois saw the screen of her kitchen window cut, she screamed out to call 911. So just take a moment to consider the horror and terror these poor parents must have been feeling. No doubt, as parents, they already have so many things stressing them out, but suddenly they're faced with one of the most traumatic experiences any parent could imagine. Mary Catherine had actually seen and heard the kidnapping, but she was so traumatized that she couldn't remember many details. And the experts decided that they shouldn't push her because it might cause even more trauma for her. Yeah, she was only nine years old at the time. This is when they began a massive search for their daughter. And when we say massive, we mean it. There were up to 2,000 volunteers helping with the search each day following the abduction. So it was a really uh, citywide effort. (laughs) I'm sorry. They used search dogs and helicopters to try to spot anything that might help. They posted missing posters with her photo all over town. Now, there was a certain man that came under the spotlight uh, early on. His name was Richard Ritchie. Well, it's R-I-C-C-I. I I don't know if it's Richie or Ricky, but... What a name. Maybe it's Ricci. Ricci? Yeah, I think that's how they pronounced it, actually. Okay, well, thankfully, we're just going to call him Richard. Richard had been arrested for some burglaries in the area. He had also done some work in the Smart's home, and his break-ins were very similar to the break-in at the Smart's house. Seems like the perfect suspect to me. They brought him in for questioning, but he denied everything and refused to confess to the kidnapping. They continued holding him in jail, and a few weeks later, Richard had a brain aneurysm and died. Okay. That's a twist in events. Yeah. So now, even if he was looking like a good suspect to the family, he's dead and they still don't know where their daughter is. This had to be devastating to the family. They were probably feeling like his confession was the only link they could hope for to find their daughter. 
Yeah, and if he died and they thought that he was the one who stole her, they probably felt like they were never going to see her again. Sadly, detectives also felt like they may never know what actually happened to Elizabeth now that the man that they were sure had taken her was dead. So we'll come back to this later, but now we're going to talk about what happened to Elizabeth the night she disappeared. On June 5th, 2002, in Salt Lake City, Utah, Elizabeth and her sister Mary Catherine were fast asleep. Yeah, because Elizabeth and Mary had shared a bed. Elizabeth woke up around 2 a.m. to find a fully bearded man in a rough white robe standing over her with his arms holding her tight, and he whispered, Don't make a sound. Remember that Mary Catherine had told their mother the man had a gun? Well, he actually had a knife, um, but she was kind of too terrified to look at him very closely until they were actually on their way out of the door, so she was probably fearing that that he might see she was awake. So she really didn't want to um, risk trying to get a good look at him. The man spoke quietly to Elizabeth, telling her to get out of bed. He warned, get out of bed now, or I will kill your little sister. Elizabeth was frozen in fear, worried that the man may have already killed her parents. She was obviously really worried about her little sister's safety. So he used this as leverage against her and told her that she'd better do what he asked to keep her family safe. It's a lot of pressure to put on a 14-year-old girl, and Elizabeth had no idea what he wanted with her. I can't imagine the stress and panic that would be going on in someone's mind when they're in this moment. I mean, my chest is tightening just thinking about how she'd be feeling at this point. Yeah, I mean, as an adult, having this happen to you, you'd be completely terrified and shook, not to mention... A 14-year-old. Yeah. It just, it just really scary stuff. Yeah, right out of the comfort of her own bed. So the man grabbed Elizabeth and held a knife to her throat as he led her into her closet to get her shoes. She bent down to grab the shoes that she wanted, but he pulled her back and said, No, those, pointing to her sneakers, knowing that they would have a long trek ahead of them. He led her out of her bedroom, again warning her not to make a sound or her whole family would be dead. He led her out and away from the house. Then he told her to put her shoes on. As they approached a road, Elizabeth spotted a police car making its rounds through the neighborhood and tried to call for help. But he tackled her and held the knife to her, saying that this was the work of God and to let this cop car pass. Now the part that really stuck out to me when we go through this outline, is the closet part, shockingly. It doesn't seem like a very big detail, but in the movie that Elizabeth, like we said before, was the director of and the narrator in, it was kind of the start of the control to me. Oh, yeah. Because she was just grabbing shoes like he had told her, but at the very second of her, like, moving her hand just to grab these pair of shoes, he, like, was like, no not those, and pointed to different ones and already dictating exactly which pair of shoes that she was to get. And I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. It stood out to me. Yeah. As as I hadn't thought about it like that before, but the the more we dig into this case, we'll see how much control he wanted to have over her and her life. Elizabeth pleaded with the man, asking him why he was doing this as he took her up the rocky, brush-filled road 
behind her house that led up to a mountainside. He held a knife to her back and forced Elizabeth to hike up the mountain with him. As she struggled and pled to return home, he tackled her again and told her that he had people working for him that would kill everyone in her house if she made one wrong move. He said, If you do anything I don't want you to do, the blood is on your hands. Yeah. He said, Their blood is on your hands. Talking about her family. This is so horrifying. As he completely takes all of her power away, like you mentioned before, and basically puts these invisible invisible shackles on her with this emotional torture, knowing that if she makes one wrong move, her family would be dead. Plus, he's forcing her to make a physically demanding hike after being abruptly woken at 2 a.m., which no one would want. On the way up, they would stop once in a while so he could pee or drink some water. He told her he was taking her for a ransom. So just put yourself in her shoes at this point and imagine the fear and dread she must have been experiencing. She had been in bed in the safety of her own home with her sister and her parents in the same house, and this man just walked right in and took her away, out of the place where we all want to feel secure. So at 14 years old, her entire idea of safety and security in her parents' house had been instantly demolished. It's heartbreaking. Although the man looked kind of crazy, with his long, dirty beard and disheveled dress and grooming, to Elizabeth, he seemed like he was very calculated and level-headed, but also mean and dangerous. When the sun was starting to come up, they were just reaching the peak of the mountain and began to hike down the other side. They made it down about one-third of the other side of the mountain. Finally, after walking for around seven hours, they reached a small camp. This is when a woman appeared from out of the camp dressed in a white robe, just like the man. She had wild-looking hair and darkly menacing eyes. So when I hear that, I'm picturing like a monk or something. It seems like a strange thing to be wearing in the woods camping. Like, what are these people up to? Right. And I, it's... People already know this, but it's not like a squeaky clean white monk robe. These are like no, 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 no. rough yeah. cloth. I don't, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't call it like a rough spun robe like a monk would wear, like, because they're white. But yeah, it's, it kind of looks like they're wearing a potato sack or something. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. Like a medical gown made out of potato sacks. Yeah, <laughs> at least that's what it looked like in... The movie that Elizabeth helped produce. (laughs) Well, it must be accurate since she was like in charge of it, right? Yeah. Elizabeth also thought it was a strange garment for camping in the woods. The woman grabbed her pretty roughly and pulled her in closely for a hug, then pushed her back away and looked her over with sinister eyes. The camp appeared to be well-stocked with supplies and very planned out, though it was still a camp with no comforts or amenities. It looked like these people had been here for a really long time. There were tarps and tents and other equipment. So it appeared like they were living in the mountains, like the feral clan from the outside. <laughs> Are you talking? Okay. <laughs> a little little sponsorship for Hulu? <laughs> yeah. Free? Free. A little freebie? 
And now, so we're starting to see what maybe could have caused these people to take Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. If we're thinking rationally, they seem to be desperate um, if they're taking her for a ransom. Of course, we know people fall on hard times, sometimes by very little fault of their own. So um, if they are having a hard time, this is such a stupid and heartless way to try to get back on your feet. The woman spoke to the man calling him Emmanuel. Then she grabbed Elizabeth and pushed her into a tent and grabbed a bucket of water to wash her feet with. She commanded Elizabeth to strip off her clothes. Elizabeth refused at first, but then the woman told her, you must be cleansed for the celestial marriage and threatened to have Emmanuel do it himself. So she gave in. Celestial marriage. I thought this was about a ransom. What the heck are these people doing? The woman told her to wash herself with a bucket of water, but Elizabeth said she had taken a shower just before going to bed. So the woman gave Elizabeth a white robe like the others to put on. Emmanuel came into the tent and informed Elizabeth that she was now sealed to him as his wife. Ugh. What this a is, shock. This is not a good-looking man either. He's. <laughs> <laughs> Would it matter if he was? It looks like he hadn't um, trimmed any facial hair for about, I don't know, five years. He looked like Tom Hanks in The Castaway when he's, Tom Hanks isn't doing so good. Yeah, <laughs> the six months later. But not as good because Tom Hanks is beautiful. Again, this is the movie version we're talking about. <laughs> That's what well, I'm talking about. If you see the pictures of like his mugshot, it's even worse than you would imagine. Like yeah. The mugshot of him and this woman were very scary. At this point, he fought her down as she struggled to get away, but he overpowered her and began to rape her. She wanted it to stop so badly. She tried everything she could to get away, rolling onto her stomach, hoping he wouldn't be able to rape her then. But he still found a way. When he finished, he left her on the floor of the dirty tent, and she just laid there and cried. She felt so broken, like a vase that had shattered in a million little pieces. She started thinking it might be better if she was dead. Yeah, this poor girl was only 14, and she just got raped by a nasty 50-ish-year-old man mm -hmm. just hours after being in the safety of her own home. It would be such a... Uh. And it just goes to show how innocent she was that she thought by rolling over on her stomach that he couldn't rape her. Uh, yeah. Also, that she thought that she was going to be a ransom up until they threw her into this tent. It was yeah. kind of a even more of a twist of events than she already yeah, was true. getting herself into. And one more thing we want to keep in mind is um, the Smart family was Mormon, so she was raised Mormon, so especially for her as a Mormon girl, young, the, you save sex for marriage, and you also you don't drink any alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, at least in her well, family, yeah. it seemed like so. Uh, this was a huge deal for her. She was in shock and exhausted, and eventually she cried herself to sleep. Elizabeth woke up with a shackle on her foot. She tried to pull it off and get it off. Then she remembered a safety pin her mother had given her to put on her pajamas. 
and she tried to use that to get the shackle unlocked. She made her way outside and saw that it was attached to a cable, locked onto another cable that was tied around two trees. She was tied up like a dog. She was feeling completely broken, hopeless, and worthless at this point. She'd gone from a normal 14-year-old girl to a nasty old man's wife, who he treated more like a sex slave or a pet than a wife. She actually found comfort in that safety pin, uh, using it as a reminder that someone loved her. It was like this little pinprick of hope for her. Yeah, it was so... Oh, it was such a bittersweet thing to see her, like, holding... It wasn't bittersweet. It was just, like, sad. She was holding the safety bitter. pin and, like, cradling it as if it were a doll or something. And it was just, you know, a safety pin. Mm-hmm. But it's what she had. That was it. Uh. As she walked into the camp, she heard Emmanuel talking about how God had chosen him. He would ramble nonstop every day about how he was the prophet chosen by God, and he was doing the Lord's work. So we'll talk more about this man next week and his religious past. But after, he, after this, he looked straight at Elizabeth and told her, God called me to the wilderness and instructed me, his prophet, Emmanuel David Isaiah, to begin preparing for the second coming. The Lord commanded me to pluck the young virgins from this evil world to take them as my wives. I have no choice but to obey. Yuck. So he appears to be off his rocker. Off his rocker? How old are you? (laughs) 27. Okay. (laughs) What was the other thing I said? Bonkers? No. I said, uh, oh, doohickey. Uh Uh-huh. And you asked me how old I am. Fair enough. All right. The woman showed her support by ritualistically replying, Amen. Your presence is proof that the Lord God Almighty has opened the way for more wives. You're blessed that you're the first. After me, of course. As Emmanuel informed Elizabeth that she was now his second wife to him, Elizabeth pleaded, We're not married. And he creepily responded, we are. We've consummated it. I don't think we've consummated it is the correct term. He raped her. He told her, no man will ever want you. You are bound forever. You are mine to fulfill every bodily need. This is so gross. But this really shows you how scary, crazy this couple is. They're saying that this is God's will, and they really seem to believe it. Yeah, how is putting someone in so much pain God's will? I just, I don't understand how that made sense to the other woman, for sure, as she was watching this. Yeah, well, as we'll talk about next week, the other woman was not all there in the head either. So after telling her that she was only there to fulfill his bodily needs, He renamed her Esther. But she got to pick the name Esther. That's right. Well, wasn't he going to name her just Isaiah? And she didn't want that because it was a boy's name. So he handed her the Bible and said, you have to make it. Yeah, you have to pick a name from the Old Testament. And it also was going to be her middle name, but they were going to call her by her middle name. Yeah, so she picked Esther because in the end, Esther outsmarted, or at least one. Because of her bravery and courage. 
Actually, a really insightful name choice for this girl that was in so much trauma. From then on, the man would rape Elizabeth on almost a daily basis. And each day, she felt more broken than the last. To survive and avoid giving up, she thought about her family, and she wanted to see them again. Elizabeth became determined to see her family again, and so she began to try to actually help her captors and get on their good side. The entire time, she knew she wasn't giving in to the Stockholm Syndrome. She never had Stockholm Syndrome. She just knew it would be harder for them to kill someone they actually liked, and she did not want to die this way. One day, after Emmanuel laid out food for them to eat, she reached for some, being hungrier than she had ever been in her life. But he slapped her hand, chastising her for trying to eat before he blessed the food. Then he told her she would not be eating that day. This poor girl went through so much. At one point, while they were sitting, she actually heard people calling her name and recognized her Uncle Dave's voice. Oh. It was the search party. Mm -hmm. um, they were getting so close, but Emmanuel grabbed her throat and made it clear that if she called out to the searchers, he would not only kill her, but also kill them. She had no choice but to let them pass. She didn't want her family to get killed searching for her. This is the kind of fear that she had to live in now. They spent two months at this camp during the summer of 2002. It was super hot during the day, but they had limited water way up there, so there was no bathing and not nearly enough to drink. About once a week, the man would leave Elizabeth chained up next to the other woman so he could go down into town and beg or steal food for them. Elizabeth was starving and dehydrated, so she got to the point where she was actually happy to see him return from these long day treks. Elizabeth was beginning to fear the man would be arrested for stealing and not coming back, and that the woman would just leave her there, shackled on the mountain, to starve to death. While he was in town, he'd smoke some pot and drink booze and come back to the camp reeking of it. I really wonder how he could afford to buy weed and alcohol when he couldn't even buy food. Maybe he was stealing booze and he had friends. That's a good point. I think he did have friends down in Salt Lake City that would hook him up. Or maybe because he was wearing that ridiculous white robe and had that gnarly beard, people were just like, Hey man, here's some weed. Yeah, well, he <laughs> he did um, claim to go down there to preach. Mm -hmm. So who knows what happened. <sighs> On one of his trips, he brought back one of the missing posters to show Elizabeth. What a dick move. It's so insensitive to the trauma that he's put her through to show her, hey, the people you love, they're looking for you, but you can't go see him. Now, didn't he, he, in the movie, he was like, they're looking for you, but I have you. Oh, yeah. Like, I have the precious pearl. Or, I don't know, he yeah, said I have it the wasn't real deal. precious pearl, but it was to that effect. Ugh. Emmanuel would force Elizabeth to drink with him to make her more compliant before he would rape her. Yeah, and like I had mentioned before, she was Mormon and... This was not okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously the rape, but we're talking about the alcohol that in her faith, in her family, she was not supposed to be drinking alcohol yeah, and neither did she want to. especially at 14 years old. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the woman got fed up with Emmanuel 
and told him that she was done sitting on the mountain starving while he was partying in town. He either had to take her with him or she'd leave. So this led to Emmanuel outfitting both Elizabeth and the other woman in burkas, so only their eyes were visible. They prepped Elizabeth by saying, If you try to escape, we'll kill you and your family. How could she not believe them? I mean, somehow this man was able to take her right out of the safety of her own home. Of course he could kill her family if he wanted to. All three of them hiked down into town, onto a walking trail that ran around downtown Salt Lake City. The first person Elizabeth saw after months in a captivity was a jogger running right past her. She didn't want to get into trouble with her captors, but she tried to use her eyes to silently plead with the jogger to notice her and recognize her. He ignored her, passing just a few feet from her. I mean, these people were dressed pretty ridiculously for summertime in downtown Salt Lake City, so people almost went out of their way to ignore them. And this made Elizabeth want to scream out of frustration. But it's also a pretty genius disguise, because... I never try to stare at, you know, mm -hmm. women with head coverings or people in burkas out of respect of not being a jerk and stare. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. And to call call out to next week again, um, we'll kind of talk about how this man that had captured her is, he's not quite as crazy as he's trying to come off. He's actually really brilliant. The man began to become more confident, parading Elizabeth out in the open. That day, he even took the girls to some kind of frat party, where he smoked weed and drank with girls by his side. In the movie, they were invited to this frat party by a grocery store cashier. cashier. Which is probably how it happens. Yeah, so that's how they got into it. and It was weird. I mean, imagine being dressed in a burqa. And all these people partying, drinking, and you're just supposed to sit there and, I don't know, yeah. it was just like... And if you make one wrong move. But my idea is that, I mean, this guy was an alcoholic. He was always drinking, and a frat party is a good place to go to get free booze, you know? So yes. I think he just got went there to get hammered. Yeah, which he did. Uh-huh. If the man noticed anyone talking to Elizabeth, he would threaten her and pull her away. Then the man would go into loud, drunken preaching sessions in the middle of the party. Yeah, the people at the party actually got so sick of him that him and the girls pushed him out of the house because he was kind of making a fool of himself. It turns out that the whole time, the man had a lower camp that was much closer to town but he felt it was too risky to stay there. But with this newfound confidence um, and not wanting to walk all the way back to the other camp, they settled at the lower campsite. This was when he stopped shackling her to the post, but he continued to threaten her and her family, and she was dependent on him for sustenance, so she was still just as much his prisoner. They would all go into town frequently from then on, and with each trip, she became more and more disheartened that nobody was recognizing her or trying to save her. Around August of that year, the man brought the girls into town to visit the library so he could look at some maps and try to find a warmer place to go for the coming winter. 
since it would be too cold to live on the mountain. While they were in the library, Elizabeth saw some people looking at her inquisitively. The three went into the map room of the library, and then a man came up to them and identified himself as a homicide detective. He asked Elizabeth to remove her hood so he could verify that she was not the missing girl he was looking for. Elizabeth was overcome with relief because she was finally going to be saved, and the man couldn't blame her for it because someone else had noticed her. But Emmanuel quickly jumped in and told the detective it was against her religion to remove her head covering. The detective asked if he could see her after converting to their religion, but Emmanuel said only her family and her husband could ever see her. After more questioning, Emmanuel said, If this is the missing girl you're looking for, why hasn't she called out for help? At this point, the detective left, and Elizabeth felt more dejected than she ever had, even more than the day of her kidnapping. So just think about what she's going through here. She'd been waiting for this moment for months, and it finally came. She finally thought that this nightmare was over, but it was ripped away from her. And to her, this meant that her situation was hopeless. She would never be rescued. It's heartbreaking. <sighs> and what I, I can't, my pet peeve is seeing people comment about this, saying, oh, she didn't even, she lied to the cops, she didn't even try to get help. She never ran away. They're always blaming her. And it just, we'll talk more about it later, but... It's so sad to see people blaming mm -hmm. her for not speaking up at this moment because, like I will keep saying, she believed that Emmanuel had people working for him on the outside mm -hmm. that could have killed his killed her family at any moment. Right, and I just can't believe how people are victim-blaming her so much. They, yeah. they view her as if she should be completely normal, having no emotional turmoil from the situation. Yeah, thinking completely clearly. Clear-headed as an adult when she's only a child and she's been with these people for months, dehydrated and hungry, sometimes strung out and drunk. Yeah. She's obviously having a really hard time emotionally, physically, and mentally. Yeah, and being raped and fearing for her life all the time. And also how... I wonder how that homicide detective felt after he realized that that actually was Elizabeth Smart. What um, an awkward situation for him to be in when they kept on telling him that it was for religious reasons. Yeah, because what can you do? I feel bad because, yeah, he felt like he was trying to be respectful, I suppose. That's why there's a fine line between freedom and safety. <sighs> yeah. After this incident... The man bragged to the girls about how he'd outsmarted a homicide detective and how it was a sign of God's favor on him. This was the last time he would take Elizabeth into town before they planned to move to California in September. When they left, they grabbed all they could carry, and wearing their robes and head coverings, they walked down the mountain to the Salt Lake City Greyhound bus station. They rode the bus to, is it El Cajon? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, 
I know Spanish. Nice job. El Cajon, California, where Emmanuel actually tried to target another young girl by posing as a Mormon and befriending her family. But it didn't work out. After this, they took the bus to Lakeside, California. When they arrived, the man found a dusty campsite hidden from the road, not too far from a high school. Then they set up a camp where they lived for the next six months. So around this time, back in Salt Lake City, thankfully, there was a huge break in the case. Elizabeth's sister, Mary Catherine, finally realized that she had recognized the strange man's voice. She told her parents, I think I know who it is, Emmanuel. So it's time to connect the dots here. The man that the family knew as Emmanuel was the man that the wife had met on the street corner, given money to and given some work to in their home. So now they're starting to realize the guy that they were doing a good deed for is probably the person that has their daughter. The police were pretty skeptical of her statement, wondering how she could recall something that happened almost a year ago. They were still sure that Richard, was it Richie? Ricky? I can't remember Ricci. what we decided on. It's Ricci. Okay. Richard Ricci was their guy. Yeah, they're really hung up on this guy, but if they are, that means the family will never have justice because he's dead. Right, so why not just go with it, just to check out? Yeah, exactly. The Smart family was frustrated that the police weren't taking Mary's statement seriously, so they hired a sketch artist to work with Mary to create a sketch of the guy. The sketch, along with the name Emmanuel, was broadcast all over the media. One of the outlets was America's Most Wanted. It turns out that Emmanuel's family was watching America's Most Wanted that night, but his name wasn't Emmanuel. It was Brian David Mitchell. Emmanuel was the name he'd given himself after proclaiming that he was a prophet. Brian David Mitchell's family called the police and revealed his true identity to them and sent them a recent photo of them. We'll talk more about his relationship with his family next week in part two. The woman who was with them was Brian Mitchell's wife, Wanda Barzi. Back in Lakeside, California, Elizabeth was still enduring sex daily sexual assault from Brian Mitchell, and she was also being starved. Brian had lost his special connection that he had in Salt Lake City to get food and drugs, so he would dumpster dive for food. Yeah, Elizabeth also mentioned that he had kind of dropped his religious act around this time because before it was all about doing the Lord's work, and this is all God's command. But um, once they moved out there, they were just so desperate that they were kind of losing a grip on the control of the situation. Elizabeth was constantly hungry and thirsty. Emmanuel continued panhandling during the days, but right after getting the money, He'd go buy booze and cigarettes for himself instead of feeding his wives. He would come home drunk with nothing to show for his day of quote-unquote work. <laughs> On Thanksgiving and Christmas, Brian took Wanda and Elizabeth to places that provided free holiday meals to people who were down on their luck. Now, these were the only real meals that Elizabeth got the whole time they were in California. Brian had noticed after a while at the camp 
that a couple people had walked by them and seemed curious about their camp. So he decided it was time to move further up the hill, away from anyone that would see them. At this time, Brian decided that the girls could no longer leave the camp. Wanda fought back, but eventually gave in and complied with him. In February 2003, Wanda and Brian got into a fight, and Brian left the campsite in anger and went down into town. While he was there, he stole some beer and a woman's purse out of her grocery cart. He found prescription pills in her purse, which he took and washed down with the beer. Stupid idea. Then he decided he needed to sleep it off, so he found a church and broke into it through the window. The break-in was reported, and while he was passed out, the police found him, arrested him, and threw him in jail. So finally, this jerk was locked up. But now this leaves Elizabeth and Wanda stuck in the camp on a hill in the desert with no food or water. They were stuck up there for four days with no water, close to death. But on the fourth day he was gone, it rained and saved their lives. Three more days passed, and Brian strolled back into the camp. He was looking clean and healthy, well-fed and happy. Yeah, unfortunately, this arrest had happened just days before he had appeared on America's Most Wanted, and his real identity was uh, finally found then, but it wasn't when he was arrested, so bad timing. He was carrying some leftover food he picked up near the back of a fast food restaurant. This food saved Elizabeth from starving to death, but her nightmare wasn't over. Real quick before we move on, I just want to mention, it's pretty significant for it to rain way down Southern California, isn't it? Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, especially where they were, it looked like they were in somewhat of a desert area. Yeah, so... They were, because I remember in the movie she was trying to pick, like, prickly pears or something. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth uh, was convinced in her own heart that this was a gift from God to help save her life. Well, she also talked about that other miracle where there was a cup of water that appeared in the tent when they were sleeping. Remember that? Oh, yeah. They were all like, they were so thirsty and it was so hard to get water. And they would just, you know, live off of the jugs that they would fill up. And she was so, so thirsty and it was late at night and she woke up from thirst and found a cup of water. And she doesn't know to this day how it Mm. happened. I mean, that is pretty interesting. After spending time in jail, Brian decided it was time for another move. This time, he set his sights on the East Coast. Yeah, he wanted to get as far away from this place of arrest as he could. Elizabeth was terrified that if he was able to scrounge up enough money to get them all the way across the country, she may never be rescued. She would pray to God to get Brian to move them back to Utah instead so she would have a better chance of being found. To Brian Mitchell's surprise, Elizabeth told him that she had a revelation from God that he needed to find his next wife in Utah. This is a really smart move on her part, because he did still have that goal of getting seven brides, and he wanted them to be all good Mormon girls, like Elizabeth. So what better place to find Mormon girls than in Utah? Brian actually agreed with Elizabeth, and they planned to return to Utah. He planned on hitchhiking, but figured no one would give them a ride dressed in their robes. So he wanted Elizabeth to cut and dye her hair to avoid being identified. But Elizabeth fought this, and thankfully, Wanda defended her on this. 
Wanda said, A woman's hair is her crown. And Brian let it go. I can't believe that Wanda went with it. I know. From all the crap that she put her through. Yeah, it is interesting. But I think Wanda was also getting a little fed up with Brian at this point. But instead of cutting and dyeing her hair on their way out of town, they stopped at a dollar store and bought the most conspicuous gray wig you could ever imagine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It looked like an old lady wig on a 14-year-old girl. So it pretty much looked like a costume. Yeah, it was obviously a disguise. Mm -hmm. They walked through the the desert trying to hitch a ride. Many people were kind to the raggedy-looking trio, giving them rides and cold water. Within a few days, on March 12, 2003, they were back in Utah. A few days prior to this, America's Most Wanted aired an update to her case, including the real name and photo Brian Mitchell's family had sent in. People were on the lookout. They returned to the first camp they had far away from town. After this, Brian had taken the girls back into town. As they walked down State Street, a woman recognized him from the photo and called the police immediately. Within minutes, several police cars surrounded the trio. Police began questioning Mitchell. And Elizabeth was frightened because she'd seen this scenario play out before in the library, and it didn't end well, so she really didn't know what was going to happen, and she was kind of frozen in fear. The police kept asking her name, but she was too afraid to say it. A second officer spoke up saying, She's scared. She doesn't dare say anything. You've got to get her all by herself. Elizabeth was still afraid to answer, but he softened his voice and calmly asked her, Are you Elizabeth Smart? Because if you are, your family has missed you so much since you were gone. They want you back. They love you. They want you to come home. Elizabeth finally found the courage to speak after he showed her kindness and patience. She responded, I am Elizabeth. Yeah, and this is where the title of her new movie came from. I am Elizabeth Smart is the movie, so we definitely recommend that you go watch that um, to kind of put this whole story into you know, a way where you can imagine it and feel what she was going through because it's it it was very well done yeah i mean a lot of people complain about how well actually i'll save this for (laughs) the next section let's finish this part first ed smart finally received the call he'd been waiting for over nine months to get in he rushed to go see her and when he saw her he was shocked by her appearance he she left a 14 year old girl but now she looked like a mature young lady, no longer childlike. He asked if it was really her, and she said, Yes, Dad, it's me. Then she could no longer hold in the tears. <sighs> so, finally a happy ending. Elizabeth was finally reunited with her family. After a long trial, which we'll discuss a bit next week, Mitchell received life in prison, and Wanda was sentenced to 15 years. So I was poking around YouTube, and I found our favorite YouTube channel, formerly known as Crime Watch Daily, now True Crime Crime Daily. True Crime? Yeah. You'd think I'd be able to pronounce true crime. (laughs) But Elizabeth Smart has done some pieces on there, actually, interviewing other victims she may be able to relate to. 
And I was completely blown away by the amount of ignorant, insensitive, and just plain old cruel comments. Not about the story in the video, but just hate directed towards Elizabeth Smart. Because of all the attention her case has gotten. And it's true, she has gotten a lot more attention for her story than a lot of other cases have. But that's because she's out there participating in activism and working to help other victims. So I'm going to read some of these comments just so we can get an idea of the type of cruelty that victims from high-profile cases like this have to deal with for the rest of their lives. So, this one moron out on YouTube who goes by the screen name Honky Kong made the comment, she said porn made it worse, so she blamed porn for her father and mother's own stupidity for hiring homeless trash to work on their property. Her parents are to blame for her rape. What? I know. I mean, homeless trash? So this pe- this person thinks all homeless people are rapists? I mean, what is wrong with people? And then blaming her parents for it? It doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't. So, fortunately, someone out there with a level head and a sense of humanity replied to this person, You're wrong to blame her parents. This is something that can happen in the front yard of a nice house in a beautiful neighborhood by someone just driving by. But, in true trolling fashion, the person kept attacking and replied, No, you are wrong. The homeless man who took her virginity by raping her was able to do so because he was familiar with the family the property, and Elizabeth herself. Her parents were so mindless that it never occurred to them that the person who took their daughter might be among the riffraff they had invited onto their property. Okay. The first suspect was a person that had done work for the family, and this guy was only there for one day. He was barely a part of their life, so... (sighs) One more that I want to share... It's someone that said, who in their right effing mind would listen to her about being kidnapped? She never tried to escape. She (laughs) even lied to the police for him. It's pictures of her with him at parties smiling. According to you, instead of getting away from my kidnapper, I should go to Walmart and party with him. Okay, cool. Genius plan. (sighs) Wow. I want to punch this person in the nards. I know. I. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're just as much as in, di- in disbelief as I am. How are there people out there that claim to know better when they've never been in the situation? They blame her for not responding to the searchers, but this man was threatening to kill the search party. She didn't want to get them killed. She believed people on the outside were working for Brian Mitchell, and if this man was able to take her right out of her house in the middle of the night, In her mind, of course he had the power to kill her family. So stop making thoughtless comments without understanding all the facts. And I know I'm kind of shooting in the dead air here because (laughs) if you're listening to our show, you're most likely not the kind of person that makes these kind of comments. But, uh, And then there's just a barrage of comments about how she sucks at interviewing and blah, blah, blah. It's I can't believe how many people are unkind to her. Mm-hmm. What do you think of all this, Rosie? <laughs> I think, Ryan, you are very heated up. <laughs> this is why I try not to 
look at any type of YouTube comments because most of them are trash. I but I cannot believe the way people just, they know. all. The, it's almost like, you know how people who don't have kids, they're the expert on raising kids? It's mm -hmm. kind of like that mentality where if you never have gone through anything so traumatic like this, then you automatically think that the way you think the way you think you would handle it is the way you, everybody should handle it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that you can't say how you would handle it because you've never been in a situation like that. We all yeah. have this rational idea in our mind of how we would do things, but, you know, we wouldn't. It's like you can't be mentally prepared for being taken out of your bed at 2 a.m. by someone who has a knife at your throat and say, well, I would do this and I would do this because you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk more about that in a bit because um, Elizabeth actually talked about that too. But uh, we just want to share a couple more interesting things related to this case. This was way back um, pretty recently after Elizabeth was found. She had been on Nancy Grace to talk about the support of um, the Amber Alert system and some new bills relating to sexual offenders that she was trying to help push through. When Elizabeth was on the show, she was there to talk about the bill that she was supporting, but Nancy kept asking her questions about her time being kidnapped. She asked Elizabeth if she ever heard people searching for her. Then, when Elizabeth replied yes... She asked her if she wanted to call out to them. Elizabeth was visibly uncomfortable, and <laughs> she was like, yeah, obviously I wanted to call out, but I felt so far away and didn't know how big the story was. Then a classic Nancy Grace moment, she interrupted Elizabeth while she was talking to inform her that she was only 14 years old at the time and said, you were afraid, I assume. Yeah, duh. This is where Elizabeth started to get really uncomfortable with the interview. You could obviously see it on her face. The discussion had gotten so far off topic Elizabeth wanted that Elizabeth wanted to talk about, and she also wasn't expecting to rehash all of this. And this is in 2006, so Elizabeth is only 18 at the time. Yeah, and I don't want to malign Nancy Grace at all, but in this circumstance... She was really not picking up on the social cues Elizabeth was giving off. Anyone could see that she was uncomfortable. Well, I don't think Nancy Grace really cared because it's her job to get good ratings and a good story. We're going to just go ahead and play a clip from this interview because you can't help but feel bad for Elizabeth because of this terrible thing that had happened to her continues to follow her around. Even though she's just trying to get involved in activism, and make a difference in the world. So here's the clip. You were just 14 years old. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to expect a, a little 14-year-old girl to react the way an adult might imagine they would react under those circumstances. You were afraid, I assume. Yeah. Did your kidnappers tell you they would hurt you or your family if you tried to get away? I, you know, they did, and I really am here to support the bill and not to go into what, you know, what happened to me, what the whole, like, what is in my past, because I'm not here to give an interview on that. I'm here to help push this bill through. And I want you to push the bill through, and I want people to hear your voice. 
Uh, when we take a look back, there is a shot of Elizabeth Smart. And here she is four years later. And frankly, it's a miracle that she was ever found. You know, a lot of people have seen shots of you wearing a burqa. How did you see out of that thing? You know, I'm really not going to talk about this at the at this time. I mean, that's something I just don't even look back at. And I really, I really, to be frankly honest, I really don't appreciate you bringing all this up. I'm sorry, dear. I thought that you would speak out to other victims, but you know what? I completely understand. A lot of victims don't want to talk about it and don't feel like talking about it. Let's talk about the bill. So any normal, sensitive person would have dropped it the first time, but she continued to display the picture of Elizabeth in the burqa and asked, how could you even see out of that thing? Then when Elizabeth made it even more clear that she wasn't going to talk about it, Nancy passive-aggressively shamed her, backhandedly implying that she didn't want to help other victims. I'm sorry, but how is talking about the burqa helping other victims? She was clearly uncomfortable, and Nancy was putting her on the spot on live TV. Not the time or the place. Now, just to try to see her side, I'm sure the big wig exec producers had their hands in this, trying to steer the conversation in a more sensational way to boost their views. But it's so heartless. Elizabeth has really used her experience to help others. As we mentioned, she got into activism at age 18 supporting the Amber Alert system and laws for sexual predators. In 2008, she had a part in a book published by the U.S. Department of Justice called You're Not Alone, where she and four other survivors shared their stories. In 2011, she founded the Elizabeth Smart Foundation to help support the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force and to educate children about violent and sexual crime. They're actually working to merge with the Operation Underground Railroad, which we talked about way back in episode 5 about human sex trafficking. Now, the audio quality of that episode was terrible, and we were pretty bad at it, <laughs> at podcasting. <laughs> but I think the content was priceless. Although, I think we'll be making another episode on human trafficking at some point, just kind of a better quality, mm -hmm. more updated version. In March 2011... Elizabeth received the Diane Von Furstenberg First, yeah. Award, which helps the recipient. <laughs> I was just about to say that you've really gotten good at pronouncing things Thanks. since we started podcasting. <laughs> I meant to say it helps the recipients of the award get more resources and exposure to accomplish the mission of their cause. And this is a very well-deserved and appropriate place for that award to end up. Four months later, she became a commentator for ABC News, mainly focusing on missing persons. In July 2012, she received another award from Theta Phi Alpha National Fraternity called the Siena Medal Award. It's the highest honor in the organization, um, or that the organization bestows upon non-members. In May 2013, she made a speech on human trafficking at John Hopkins University. She stressed the importance of self-worth in fighting human trafficking and dispelling the cultural myths implying that girls lose value after having sexual conduct or ca contact. 
And this is such a huge stigma that contributes to victims feeling shame over things that were done to them, completely out of their control. It can be so discouraging to someone who has been raped if it comes with a heavy dose of shame, especially. It can make someone who's been taken feel like there's no point in trying to be rescued. In this speech, Elizabeth recalled how she felt after she was raped by her captor, remembering how certain, quote, sexual education programs would compare a sexually active girl to a chewed-up piece of gum. She felt like that chewed-up piece of gum. She thought, nobody rechews a piece of gum. You throw it away. And she stressed that that it's that easy to feel like you have no worth after having that stigma drilled into you. In her mind, she thought, why would it even be worth screaming out? Why would it even make a difference if you are rescued? Your life still has no value. Following this, she asked her listeners to educate their children on the importance of having self-worth. Yeah, this was beautifully put in the speech. I'm sure a lot of these thoughts were running through her head seven years before this when she was on Nancy Grace. But it's a complicated explanation, and she wasn't prepared to talk about it. In 2014, she advocated for a bill that would provide training in schools on child sexual abuse prevention. There was an incident this year, in 2018, where a legislator from Rhode Island named a bill after her that would require all computers to have a pornography filter. He called it the Elizabeth Smart Law. I'm not really seeing how that connects... In March of 2018, her lawyer sent a cease and desist letter demanding that he stop using her name. You would think a legislator would contact a person for permission before using their name, especially when trying to pass such a controversial bill that many would see as infringing on their rights and freedom. Well, I do agree that it's wrong to look at porn at school, but it's weird that they used her name. Is this only in schools? I think. Oh, you're right. I, for some reason, just assumed that this was like a school thing. It seems like it's a New Hampshire thing. You mean Rhode Island? Rhode Island. Sorry. (laughs) I get the New England states mixed up. It's okay. On September 19th, 2018, just a few months ago, Wanda Barzi was released from prison. But Elizabeth Smart made an Instagram post saying, Without a doubt, the past few weeks have been a roller coaster of emotion. And I would like to take the opportunity to thank everyone for their kind words, support, and concern. It has meant so much to me. May we all remain vigilant in watching over our families, friends, and community from anyone who would seek to hurt or to take advantage. I truly believe life is meant to be happy and beautiful. And no matter what happens, that will remain my goal for me and for my family. This is so well put. She's not letting her past hold her back from happiness. And not only that, but she's using her experience to help others um, the best she can to help prevent abuse. And I gotta say, I really look up to her. It's amazing the way she's recovered and made the best of a bad situation. It's so scary to hear how this all went down in the first place, though, because Elizabeth and her mom and sister were just out having some family time, shopping like people do. And her mother tried to do a good deed, and this moment led to Elizabeth's future abductor and abuser getting access to their lives. It's sickening because there's no way Ed could have known who he was hiring, and no way Elizabeth could have avoided being kidnapped. She had no idea. 
This makes me really want to get a security system, <laughs> but I can't decide between Simply Safe, <laughs> Ring, or Nest. So if anyone has suggestions, let me know. <laughs> and yet, even though there was no real way she could have prevented what happened to her, Elizabeth's still trying to help give others the tools we all need to protect ourselves the best we can. Elizabeth made an appearance on CBS this morning, just after Wanda Barzi was released. She talked about a letter of apology that Wanda was required to write when she'd taken her plea deal. It really didn't mean that much to Elizabeth. Yeah, and I see her point there. When someone's forced to write a heartfelt letter, it's never heart heartfelt. It's like when your wife says, you never buy me flowers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day, if you buy her flowers and um, she's like, I want you to think of this on your own, not because I reminded you. It doesn't feel genuine. It's it's you know, it doesn't mean the same thing. If, yeah. Your if husband should just the buy you the flowers when you want them. <laughs> it's <laughs> a nice sorry. little present. But it's nice that the justice system makes people write letters of apology, but in my opinion, it's more about the humiliation of the perpetrator than for the healing of the victim. In the same interview, Elizabeth talked about forgiving Wanda. She said she didn't think she could, f could have fully moved on with her life if she was still holding on to hate and anger towards Wanda, because it would still be taking up a part of her and she wanted to be able to love her own children and her husband with 100% of herself. So, Rosie, this reminds me of that podcast you were talking about a few weeks back about how forgiveness isn't really for the other person, but it's for yourself. And it's such a powerful thing to remember, that you don't need to forgive someone that victimized you for their sake. And also, there's no timetable. You can't forgive someone that ruined your life until you're ready to do it for yourself. So there's no pressure, no judgment if you can't forgive someone. But keep it open as an option in the future because it really is a huge part of moving on with your life and making the best of it. If you're really new here and haven't heard Rosie's story yet, it's episode 18 and near the end I had asked her if she's forgiven her abuser yet and she was still kind of on the fence. I mean, it's not an easy thing to come to. What do you think, Rosie? Wow, I think that it really is, forgiveness is such a powerful thing because it really does help the person who forgives a new door, a new way to put it past you, move on with your life, and just feel better. It's almost like taking a load off your shoulders. And I feel like in the past couple of months, after doing my episode and just putting everything on the table, I've been able to, in my own way, forgive my abuser. But my abuser never needs to know that I forgave him. And that's the beautiful thing about true forgiveness. Yeah. You don't have to broadcast, even though I am right now yeah. on this podcast. But you don't have to let the whole world know that you're forgiving somebody. And it doesn't mean that you're okay with what they did. It just means that you're closing the lid on the situation. And you're not going to be filled with anger and hate anymore. You're just going to let go of it. Yeah. I'm really proud of you. Thanks. <laughs> So after this, Elizabeth talked about her tiny little pinprick of hope that she was able to hold on to while she was raped every night and treated like a slave every day. She mentioned that no matter what happened to her or what anyone else thought of her after this whole thing was over, 
knowing that her parents loved her unconditionally is what really helped her to push through. Rosie, you also know about that, especially because you knew your abuser and had the same friend group. There was a lot of misunderstanding in the situation and people taking sides and people blaming you for what happened. How did you get through that? Uh, Lots and lots of therapy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also my best friend that I gained a little while after that, his name is Ryan. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I also want to reiterate how um, she said her parents' unconditional love is what got her through. She'd mentioned how hard she tries to make sure her own kids know as much as possible that no matter what happens to them, she will always love them unconditionally. And this is such a great example and lesson for all of us, especially parents. When we talk about giving our kids a toolbox to work with, even when abuse can't be 100% prevented, assuring your kids that no matter what happens, not to give up because you will love them no matter what. I mean, this is what helped Elizabeth Smart push through her nightmare, so it's invaluable. This interview was full of amazing gems of insight and wisdom into these situations. She also talked about how, if she hadn't experienced this situation for herself, she may have naively blamed the victim and thought, what was she wearing? Or, what was she doing to make this happen to her? Why didn't she run? But now, Elizabeth realizes that these are stupid questions. It doesn't matter if it's someone that's safely locked away in their bedroom or someone working in the street corner. This shouldn't happen to anyone. Yeah, and just another super powerful um, piece of wisdom because um, I want to call back to Marissa's experience uh, with podcast reviews. You probably know Marissa as the voice from the Vanished podcast. And she had one reviewer straight up say that the host should get human trafficked. But that's not the one I'm calling back to now. She had talked about how she discusses all kinds of cases, not just high profile, but she favors cases that don't get much media coverage because the family had reached out to her to help get the word out about their missing loved ones. And the review said, Addicts disappear. Mom complains. Host records. Episodes feature high-risk people who live dangerously, questionably, or illegally. Okay, it's true these people may be in a more quote-unquote dangerous place, but if we think this puts the responsibility of being victimized on their shoulders, then we're completely misidentifying the root of the problem. They're not the ones making it a dangerous place to be. The predators often target these people Because if they're in these professions, they typically don't have much close family to fall back on or to ask for help, and they're desperate to earn a living. So if they don't have a close family to fall back on, it's less likely someone would come looking if they disappeared. Think about how long John Wayne Gacy got away with his abductions. This makes them an easy target, yes, but that doesn't mean their lifestyle is to blame for becoming a target. It's just the terrible people out there that want to harm others. They take advantage of these people in desperate situations. The predator is the one that's 100% to blame. They're the ones making the disappearances happen, not the victim. Woo! That was a good speech. Well, thanks, Rosie. 
So that's where we'll pick up back next week. <laughs> <laughs> that's good enough. I meant to say that's where we'll pick back up next week. Yeah. We're going to discuss Brian Mitchell and the events in his life that led up to this tragic part of Elizabeth's life. Be sure to subscribe to our show and leave us a review, letting us know what you appreciate about our show and what we could do better. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or please email us with your own story. At vovpodcasts at gmail.com. Just an update for those of you who are concerned about my cats. We adopted our newest fur baby. His name is not Black Bean Taco. We've decided to that he's more of a burrito type cat. You know, you've already announced this, right? Did I? Yeah, last week. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, he's doing very well. <laughs> I really love him. He toots a lot, but I think it's just a phase. Didn't something happen with the... Oh, this morning. Since we're at the end of the podcast, <laughs> and you can turn it off if you're if you don't want to hear us talk about our cats, but... Some people actually like hearing us talk about our cats. So this morning I got up. I was first pee of the day. And the toilet lid was up. And all of a sudden I just finished peeing. And little black bean burrito just jumps. Yeah. The toilet. He just jumps up (laughs) straight into the toilet bowl. And lands in the <laughs> toilet water, which I just peed in. so gross. And his new nickname is Peepaws. <laughs> yeah, we cleaned him up best we could, though. So I think yeah, he's okay he, now. He licked his paws for quite a while after <laughs> that, which I'm like, ugh. But then I thought about it, and, you know, they lick their own crap off of themselves. So yep. I think he'll be okay. But <laughs> that was our interesting cat story for the day, and I'm sorry if it grossed anyone out. It was really funny, though. <laughs> it was, it um, was shocking. Other than that, I, I forgot that I told them that we had a cat, a new cat, but, yep, he's fitting in right, very nicely. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Also, don't forget, our new Patreon episode is out about Jared, the subway guy. So if you're still on the fence about supporting us on Patreon, there is an interesting episode up to listen to. you get free stuff. So, I mean, I guess it's not free-free since you're supporting us. But hey, it's a little something-something. And also, to all the Patreon supporters that haven't gotten their stuff yet... We've been so busy. I was with in Arizona. Our, our other jobs, so we apologize that it's taking a little bit to it's get them fault, sent out. It's my fault because I'm in charge of Patreon packages. But I was in Arizona. Yeah, so we're gonna get those taken care of this week. Yeah. And we thank you again so much for your support. They would have been mailed out today, but George's George Bush Senior's funeral is today. Yeah. Yeah, the post office closed today. So, yeah, we're plugging along. Super psyched about our patrons. Love you guys. So excited that you have decided to support our show out of all the shows out there. Yeah, for real. Um, We also apologize that we're so tired right now. No. and We should probably stop talking. Stop apologizing. We'll let you go, though. Yeah, because I still have to edit this, and our typical release time is 
48 minutes from this moment, so okay. somehow I have to edit an hour and a half in 48 minutes. Alright. I can do this. Okay. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, bye! I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We investigate cases of family violence each season, using academic research to help us interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. In season one, we follow the case of little Militia Gibson, who was murdered by her stepfather as her mother stood by without intervening. We learn that Militia was not the only one being abused and took a hard look at laws and policies regarding abuse. In season two, we're telling the story of Tracy Thurman, who sued her city because police refused to protect her from her abusive husband. We'll also study the case of Joshua Osborne. His case was sensational, replete with a biker gang who rallied to protect Joshua and new legislation resulting from his case. Josh passed away a few years ago and two of his siblings agreed to tell his story. Except they've revealed it wasn't just Josh's story. It's their story too. One that has been suppressed for over a decade. You can find Targeted Podcast, True Crime, Domestic Violence on iTunes, Spotify, and all the major podcatchers. Peace, my friends. Peace.